Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Litzy, physical therapist and owner of Karen Litzy Physical Therapist, located in the heart of New York City. So on today's episode, we are talking about lung transplantation and how that procedure affects not just the patient, but the doctors performing the procedures. So I'm really happy to introduce Dr. David Weil, former director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and Lung and Heart Lung Transplant Program at Stanford University Medical Center. He's a renowned transplant doctor and author of the gripping memoir, Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. With extensive experience and expertise in the field, Dr. Wild delves into the emotional journey of being a transplant surgeon, explores the complexities of organ transplantation, and offers valuable insights on work-life balance and burnout profession for professionals, um, especially those in healthcare. So I want to thank Dr. Wild. This is such a great episode. I learned so much. And yes, I did ask him about uh, Grey's Anatomy and is it real when they show these transplant scenes? Is it real or is it just way over the top? Um, So make sure you listen to today's episode to get that answer and everyone enjoy and have a great week. Hi, Dr. Weil. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Thanks for having me. And everyone, you can probably still hear my voice. It's still not where it should be. And I was joking with Dr. Weil because, you know, he works with lung transplant patients. And um, so I didn't want, I was not trying to hit him up for any lung, uh, extra lung advice. Um, But this is from in New York. We had a little bit of a smoke issue that I'm sure a lot of people saw on the news and it has affected my voice. So for now, I'm a couple octaves lower. Um, but that's okay. We will get through this. So Dr. Well, thank you for coming on to talk about uh, lung transplants, which is the first time I'm talking about any sort of uh, medical transplant on the show. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot to talk about. I'm excited to get to dive in. Um, before we get into the how things work and the complexity can you talk a little bit more about your experiences as a transplant doctor? I'm sure it's very emotional. You're working with people who are literally at the end of their rope. So can you talk about what your experiences have been like? Yeah, the uh, the career was one of ups and downs. So there are high highs and low lows. So in the morning, you know, we could see a successful transplant done where we save somebody from the brink of death. And then in the afternoon, we, we could lose a patient on the waiting list. And you have to get yourself ready. And the whole team did for these ups and downs. The other part of transplantation, which always attracted me was how close we came uh, to the families uh, of the patients that were transplanted. So we got to know them well, and um, the good part of that was, is we, you know, we we really understood what was going on, the family dynamics. But the bad part was, is that when we lost a patient that we knew very well, it was tough emotionally. So I think the job was physically demanding. The hours were long. We did a lot of nighttime work, 
but also very emotionally demanding because of the fact that people were on the brink of death, um, you know, often. And, you know, from my very limited knowledge of transplantations, a lot of it is from watching shows like Grey's Anatomy, right? So when you look at those shows, is that, is, do you feel that is representative of how the transplant works? how the system works. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some of those shows as well. And, you know, a lot of the time is compressed um, because it's an hour long show. But I think that the part of it that I think is true to life is that patients are literally waiting, you know, next to their phone, waiting for us to call them when we have an organ available. And when we do get an organ available, time is short. Um, We really have to get moving. And it's very dramatic in that way. And I think it lends itself well to television and movies. And I've seen, you know, enough of those. But I think in in real life, it it was, you know, an experience like none other, because things happen very quickly. And things change for patients very quickly. Um, In other words, we were able with an operation that would last six to eight hours, turn folks around, you know, rather quickly and get them back to their loved ones, which was gratifying, you know, and it's the, you know, gift that kept on giving as far as I was Mm -hmm. concerned in my career. And let's talk about this career path for a second, because this is something I would imagine requires a lot of time and a lot of training. So can you tell the listeners a little bit more about what this career path is like to becoming a transplant doctor and any advice you might have for doctors wanting to take this alternative path in medicine? Yeah, I I think, you know, like most doctors, it was four years of college, four years of medical school. And then for me, it was six years of residency where I got trained in pulmonary critical care and lung transplantation. And then the learning didn't stop after that, um, thankfully, you know, so I was around, I think, 31 years old when I finished training. But I think the next 10 years or so, you're on a very steep learning curve. You know, Mm -hmm. you're seeing things that you haven't seen before. You're learning new new things. You touched on something that I think is important, though. One one thing that concerns me about our field right now is we're not attracting some of the younger physicians to the field. And I don't think that there's going to be enough lung and heart uh, transplant physicians to go around, uh, which is concerning to me. There's a lot of different reasons for that. I think some of it is the work-life balance that's important to folks right now. And transplantation does not really provide that work-life balance. It's um, a 24-7, 365 kind of job. And so what we're seeing is not as many young people going into the field. And that's something that I've written and talked a great deal about. And do you think it'll reach that point where it will prevent people from this life-saving surgery because there aren't enough, like you said, not enough to go around? I, I hope not. You know, what I th- what I think will probably happen is there'll be some consolidation of transplant programs. There won't be as many of them because we don't have enough people to staff all of them. You know, so instead of having three or four programs in a big city like New York, um, maybe there'll be one, maybe there'll mm-hmm. be two. And there's other cities across the country where you see the same thing. Maybe we don't need as many transplant programs. 
maybe we just need better ones. And I think to get them adequately staffed is a, is a challenge, something I help transplant programs with now, but frankly, finding it difficult increasingly to find young people that want to go into the field. And what advice would you have for people who are thinking about it? I, I, I've talked to a lot of people that are thinking about it. I think the most important thing is eyes wide open, you know, know what the field demands, mm -hmm. but also try to set up the job in a way that you can have some sort of balance. There were times, and I write about this in my book, there were times that I did not achieve that balance in my life. But I think there's, there's ways to do that now. Programs are hiring, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants and right. all kinds of staff to help them decrease the burden on the physicians to do all, all of the work. And I think that's a good trend. And I encourage the young people that are entering the field to enter it because they love it, because it's such a miraculous field of medicine, but also understanding that they have to protect themselves as well. Right. I think that's great advice. And now let's talk about organ transplantation as a procedure kind of from the beginning. So a patient is obviously critically ill. So they go on a wait list. How do these wait lists work? Well, so patients are critically ill by definition that need a heart or a lung transplant. Right. And we go through an evaluation process that not only looks at their physical self, but also their psychological <laughs> self and the family support that they have in place. And these factors are extremely important. It's a difficult um, therapy and you have to have a good support system in place. And I, I, I know that many of your listeners are physical therapists. We also look for rehab potential in those patients. In other words, we can put new machinery in, new heart, new lungs, but unless they're physically able to get out of bed and get going and have the muscle mass and the conditioning to do that, right. the operation won't work. So we lean heavily on the physical therapist to, to help us not only assess the preoperative patients, but also help us postoperatively care for them. So the waiting period is stressful. Uh, for the patients, their families. It's even stressful for us because we, we carry around a list of names in our pockets and we mm. want all of them transplanted safely. Sure. And, and once the operation happens and a patient comes back into the ICU, they usually have a couple of weeks in the hospital, but then afterwards they're required really to live close to the hospital so that we can see them frequently so that they can get the physical rehab done so that they can get their medications adjusted. And so it, it, it really does require a real family commitment and a team effort on the on the behalf of the providers. Right. Oh, I didn't realize, I guess that makes sense. Like it would be very difficult to have a lung transplantation or heart transplantation. Let's say it's in uh, I know you're down south, you're in New Orleans. Yes. So, and then they go, let's say three hours north to a rural area. It must be difficult to, near impossible to stay on top of, of someone, especially like right after surgery. Cause we think, well, you have surgery, you go home, wherever yeah. that home is. And right. here it does not sound like that's the case. 
No, we, when I was at Stanford, we required patients to stay near us for three months. In fact, we had, oh, an, okay. we, we had an apartment building right on uh, the Stanford campus that we would house our patients. And there's so much going on. The patients are being seen in clinic, laboratory tests are being, mm -hmm. blood draws are, are happening, physical re PTs going on all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we would keep them closed for a few months and then gradually send them back to where they came from. Ideally, th there would be some other folks in their hometown to take care of them. But it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of effort to come back and forth, especially, you know, out in California. Right. Um, We've transplanted people in Idaho and Montana and Texas and everywhere in the western half of the United States, really. Right, right. I never even thought about that, but that makes perfect sense. Um, so would you mind talking a little bit about the operation itself? It's obviously like I I feel like it's so complex, I can't even wrap my head around it. But could you share a little bit of that complexity and what what makes something work? And if you get in there, what would make something absolutely not work? Or does that even happen? Yeah, the, the operation actually, you know, is divided into two basic phases. One is getting the old lungs out, which sounds like it might be easy, but it's not. Um, there's it, it does not sound easy at all. <laughs> there's diseased lungs that often don't want to come out. There's a lot of scarring. There's um, blood loss during that part of the operation often. And that's usually a very critical part of the whole procedure. And then once the lungs are out, the new ones have to come in. And there's really three basic connections that are made. One, the pulmonary vein connection, pulmonary venous connection. Two, the pulmonary artery connection. And then three, the main airway uh, needs to be connected. And that operation generally takes about six to eight hours if we're talking about a double lung transplant, maybe a little bit shorter if we're talking mm -hmm. about a single lung transplant. We do both. And how do you, this might be a silly question, but do you train for this? Like, do you need to physically train to, because standing for six to eight hours is one thing. Standing for six to eight hours with lungs in your hand where you have to be physically and and uh, cognitively very nimble two are two very different things. So yeah, I, I think that um, there is a physical component, you know, to the entire transplant procedure. There's a there's a focus that's required. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a physical part of it. I think one thing that's made transplant different difficult, and we can talk a little bit more about this, is that, that often this is happening in the middle of the night. And right. you know, I don't I don't think any, anybody's their best at two in the morning. And I think um, there's now new um, technologies in, in place that can allow us to put off the operation until the morning. They essentially these devices keep the lungs, heart, liver, kidney alive. So the, the new one. Yeah, the, the new suit, one. Oh, and actually you can keep these new organs, these transplant organs uh, on a machine and keep them alive until say seven in the morning, the transplant team comes in, does the operation after a good night's sleep. I think we all want that. Yeah. <laughs> Both patients and the, and the doctors. Right. So right, I, right. I think that's the next horizon that's already happening in transplant. 
Oh, that's so interesting. Any other, how long have you been doing this for? I mean, uh, I'm a, you don't, you don't the, have to say, you don't have to give a, you could just say approximate. Since the early nineties. Yeah. Since the early nineties. Yeah. So I look at from like an orthopedic standpoint, the evolution of a total knee replacement, total hip replacement. Right. It's like night and day right. from the early nineties to where we are now. So what advances aside from what you just said, the technology to keep the transplanted organ alive. Has there been any other um, changes in technology, techniques, uh, or materials that has made this procedure easier for you as the surgeon and easier on the patient? I, I think there have been many. I mean, when I started out in the field, it was largely experimental. In other words, we would do the operation, but we weren't really sure what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that the surgical technique has improved. The way we procure organs has improved. The immunosuppressive medications that we use postoperatively are much better. The infectious disease drugs that we have at our disposal are much better. And so if you take all of this into account, the survival for the patients is are better. Uh, and, right. you know, one gratifying thing about getting to be my age, maybe the only gratifying thing <laughs> is that we've seen this kind of improvement happen over the course of my career where transplants probably never going to be routine, but it's getting right. more routine. Right. And I think right. that that's, that's really good. And I, I think there's going to be a day when, you know, it becomes less of a risk to the patient and we're going to be able to, to pretty, pretty safely put these organs in and know what to expect. And, and I think we're getting there. Yeah. I mean, that's wild. I mean, you must look back and be like, I can't believe we did things this way. But Very, of course, yeah. hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Um, and, and then you come now and you're like, man, things have improved. Yeah. And I, I mean, even the generation of doctors before me, I mean, they were really uh, on the cutting edge. I mean, these mm -hmm. guys were pioneers, those people that did the first operations. I mean, can you imagine, you're, you know, you're the surgeon doing the first heart transplant? No. Um, can you yeah. imagine being the patient? Or the patient, <laughs> the yeah, the yeah, even more appropriately. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's shift over to the patients now. You mentioned uh, some improved medications. What is involved in the aftercare for patients? So we know they have to stick around for several several months. What else is involved in that aftercare? Well, I think the biggest thing is, you know, the patients had a big operation. And in any big operation, PT is critical, you mm -hmm. know, getting the patient up and moving and mobilized as quickly as possible while they're in the ICU. But while they're, while they're doing that, we have to put in place an immunosuppressive regimen. So we have to suppress the immune system so patients don't reject their organs. Right. And because they're immunosuppressed, we have to put in place an infectious disease regimen to prevent infections from happening. And we're juggling those medications and their side effects you know, throughout that early hospital stay. But the whole time we're trying to get the patients moving, you know, that's critical. Um, there's also wound healing, you know, it's a big operation. We've made a big incision and we have to make sure that the wound's healing well. And all of this stuff is going on in a hospital environment that sometimes it's not the best place for patients to heal. Right. 
and you know they're trying to get rest their families are exhausted they're trying to get rest and we're trying to get all of this done as quickly as possible because our goal is really to get the patient out of the hospital as fast as possible what is we, the average length of stay for a lung transplant it's around 12 days in the u.s and some oh, i was expecting much yeah. longer yeah some programs are longer some are shorter you know okay. and and i think if all goes well we expect you know 12 to 14 days uh post-operative and that that's great because we all know, and I'm sure your listeners know that some bad stuff can happen in the hospitals. You of know, there's infectious issues, there's right. medical errors, uh, there's all sorts of things. And patients are going to feel better if they can go sleep in their own bed. Of course. And how did the last couple of years, the COVID in, um, pandemic, how did that affect? Because, you know, you're talking about suppressing the immune system. We all know COVID was not kind to those with. Uh, suppressed immune system. So right. how did you account for that? And it's not like COVID's gone, it's still here. Right. So how do you continue to account for that with these lung transplant patients? Well, before there was a vaccine available, COVID had about a 24% mortality in our lung transplant patients. So that's it's like, yeah, very high. I mean, that's one in four patients who got COVID-19 would die from it. Right. So, and that's, compared to less than 1% for the general population in terms of mortality. Mm -hmm. So it, it was hard. And then we got the vaccine and then our patients would become vaccinated both before and after transplant and things have gotten much, much better. Now, you know, we had some controversy as much of the country did about whether or not we should require patients to get vaccinated before putting them on a waiting list. Uh, for a transplant. Uh, in full disclosure, I was very much in favor of requiring that um, because of the limited number of lungs we have to put in people and right. want them to do it as best we can without making any political political statement. I thought that was right. important to do. Right. And so I, I called for that early on. There was also the other thing that was interesting about the pandemic, some of your listeners might might be interested to hear is how many transplants we've done lung transplants in people that had COVID pneumonia. Oh, that's so interesting. There's now been several hundred uh, lung transplants performed wow. in people that had such bad COVID pneumonia that they couldn't get off the ventilator or the ECMO machine and would require, have required a lung transplant in order to survive. Oh my God. What a, that is just tragic. Yeah, it really is. And many, many of them unvaccinated, unfortunately. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Yep. Um, and how do you, like, what sort of metrics do you use to measure, obviously, success uh, for the patient, I'm assuming, is the patient lives and they go on. And and is there a, after you have a lung transplant, do you live a full life? A long, is your life expectancy the same as someone who didn't have a lung transplant? Well, programs are judged, and I've written and talked a lot about this. Programs are judged by their one-year survival after a transplant. So okay. the program is based on a one-year survival metric. Now, patients and, and us are interested in patients living a lot longer than that. But there has to be some basic measurement of how well a transplant program can do the operation. And one-year survival is what's 
what's been determined to be probably the the easiest way to measure it right programs that are in the u.s that are doing pretty well have about an 85 to 95 percent one year survival Mm -hmm. so nine out of ten patients generally make it to one year Mm -hmm. and then after that it's really all over the board i mean i've taken i've taken care of patients that are 25 and 30 years out from their transplant and then there's some patients unfortunately that pass away a couple years after their transplant it really is impacted a lot by how you go into the operation, what kind of shape you're in before the operation. Some of our patients are weeks away from dying, sometimes days away from dying, and other people not as sick. And so the ones that are not as sick do better after the transplant, as you might imagine. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and not, not to go back to Grey's Anatomy again, but like I said, that's like my you know, that's where I see a lot of like the action. So it seems to me what on these types of shows, they're always talking about there's not enough supply, if you will. So there's not enough lungs for all the people on the wait list. So is it really a lack of supply or lack of organs um, that is the problem for patients on a on a lung transplant wait list? I think it's a good question. You know, one I've talked about a lot over the years, I think that there's a basic supply issue, but the supply issue is probably because we don't utilize the organs that we have available to us as well as we should. Even if we start out with the, the, the consent, in other words, what's the likelihood that a family that's approached for organ donation will consent to that donation? It's probably mm-hmm. 50-50 if you take yeah. all numbers half will and half won't. So half of the potential organ donors go out the window just because there's no consent that's provided. And then there's the other half that sometimes we, you know, don't have the logistical wherewithal to get a transplant team to a transplant, a donor hospital to procure the organs. And there's logistical Mm -hmm. problems of moving organs around the country 24 7 365 right and so we waste organs that way and i think some of these new technologies that i was talking about earlier will make those logistical issues less of an issue and i'm looking forward to not wasting any more lungs so i think there always is a supply issue but it may not be as dramatic as as we once thought right right gosh there's so much that goes into this procedure from a physical standpoint, an emotional standpoint, cognitive standpoint. And it kind of brings me um, to your book, Transplant Doctor's Journey and Insights on Organ Transplant, Burnout, and Work-Life Balance. So what inspired you to write this, number one? And number two, was it cathartic? Did it cause you to like, did you have any breakdowns as you were writing it? Did it cause you to do a lot of reflection? What was that like? All, all of the above. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the basic reason that I wrote it was I think that it, it's an interesting job. And I think that I walked around a lot in the hospital, you know, especially when I was at Stanford, wishing somebody was with me so that I could show them all of this. Um, I think that I wanted to kind of peel back the curtain and show the reader basically how these transplants w- really work. I mean, how do you get how do you get one 
what are people like me thinking while we're doing this? Right. What are the team dynamics? Um, what are the emotional parts of it? So I tell patient stories in the book. I tell stories about how I was feeling, you know, when I was crushed a lot emotionally by some of the things that I saw in the hospital. I just wanted to humanize it and basically show a reader, hey, this is what happens, you know, when you do this kind of work. And I'm attracted, I read a lot of memoir because I'm interested in what's it like to be an airline pilot or mm -hmm. a star trader or whatever. And I thought that there might be some interest in seeing what it's like to run a big transplant program. And that's why I wrote the book. And what, what are some things as you look back on your career that you learned from treating these very serious and critically ill patients? So it might be something that you learned about society. And, and listen, we can have a whole separate podcast on maybe what leads up to some of the people who end up on your table yeah. um, from a uh, health disparity right. neighborhood uh, point of view. But what has your being around these critically ill folks and their family, what has that done for you? What, what do you feel like you've learned? Well, I, I think this career has been the education of a lifetime because I think I think medicine in general is 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 interesting. And then transplantation focuses all of societal problems into into one procedure, really. Mm -hmm. you, know, you touched on, you know, the health disparities that happen, both racial and socioeconomic, those show up in transplant. Ethics show up in transplant, accountability shows up in transplant, medical errors shows up in transplant burnout shows up in transplant, uh, you name it. It's all, it's really all there. And I think looking back on my career, I got a, a front row seat to all of it. Uh, and right. I think it's interesting that those of us that were in the field practicing it, we're, we're, we were grateful and I, I, I'm extremely grateful to be able to do it because the courage that the patients show is remarkable. And that, that doesn't just go from the people receiving the organ. That's the people also that choose in the worst possible moment of their life to donate organs. And so I saw the best in people. And, you know, I think there's a lot out there right now that shows the worst of people. I saw the best of people in these instances. And I think you not only learn about that people are generally good, but you learn about yourself as well. And I write about this in the book. I did some things that were really good and I did some things that I think that weren't so good, you know, and I think that you improve and you try mm -hmm. to keep working. Mm -hmm. And I think that the only way you can get better is to have some of these things revealed. And I think in a job like the one I had, these are these these issues are going to come up right and, that, and i tried to write about them as honestly as i could and did you ever because i think this is human but did you ever you know speak to people who are on on the list and you're just like man why didn't they only just sure. stop smoking do this sure. do that like i have to imagine that that comes in and that must be frustrating 
because you're like, no, no, I don't want to think this because this person is ill and they need the help. And like you said, they are courageous. They're coming for help. They want the help. They're willing to do this life-changing surgery. But then there's that part of you where it's like, why didn't you just do yeah, X, Y, I mean, and Z when you were younger or healthy? That's or- right. And, and, you know, we're, and, you know, we're humans, right? And right. we're humans doing this job. And so did I make judgments about our patient group? Absolutely. You, you can't help but, but do that. And, you know, we saw very compliant, very um, diligent patients die on the waiting list or die after the transplant. We saw patients less compliant, less diligent, live a long time after right. the transplant. So it was, it, was, it was all there. What we tried to do that, though, and I, I tried very hard to do that, is not take my values and impose them mm-hmm. subjectively into the process. And where that came up the most is when we were selecting candidates for transplant. You know, Ugh. the selection of, of transplant candidates is, is, is a weighty responsibility because you know if you turn down a patient for transplant, they're going to, they're going to die. Oh, it's, God. That would it just keeps you up at night. How could it? Well, it did. Yeah, I <laughs> and, mean. Um, and I think we're sitting around a conference table talking about people in the abstract, we're looking at their medical data and trying to make a judgment. But a lot of times, very subjective analyses came in how a patient presented themselves. You know, were they a winning personality, somebody you wanted to have a beer with, you know, mm-hmm. or not? And none of that actually should matter. But right. as human beings doing the, this job, it came in. And, you know, I tried as best I could, and I write about some of this in the book. Actually, I brought the reader into those selection meetings mm-hmm. because that's where we really found out what we were all about. You know, was I going to turn somebody down for a transplant because they had a police record or because they right. used to be on drugs, but they had kicked that or right. there was domestic abuse? You know, things that are not really great character traits, but nonetheless, should we turn them down for transplant as a result? Right, right. And those are oh, my gosh. Of, yeah. So hard. Um, and I guess that's where, like you said, uh, there's empathy, there's ethics. And that sounds like one of those ethics questions and empathy kind of all rolled into one. But I would imagine if you don't, recognize that and at least admit that to yourself like this is what's going on in this situation that can certainly lead to burnout so what like do you have any tips for people and it may not be just the surgeon it could be anyone on the surgical team right like you said it could be a pa nurse nurse practitioner um or nurses uh, anesthesiologist, right? It's a, I don't know how many people are in the operating room for this yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. 40, a lot, yeah, 40 people, lot, 50? I mean, our team at Stanford, we had 60, 60, 60. people. On the team. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. I mean, burnout, there's been a lot of discussion about physician burnout, especially mm-hmm. during COVID, but it goes all the way through the team. You know, the team is subjected to that nurses, you know, PTs, social workers, everyone on the team. Right. The main thing I think that helps prevent burnout is mission. I think that if the team feels like they're connected to one another, that they're on a mission that's important, that's bigger than them, 
then burnout is less likely. I think when I got into issues in my own career is when I, I, I got isolated. I felt isolated from my team, from my family, from my friends. I think it's important to stay connected to one another. And if I had one piece of advice for young people going into the field, whether a doctor or another member of the care team would be to stay connected to your work colleagues, to the people at home and fight the isolation as much as you can, because I think that's the enemy. Right. And burnout was real for you, correct? Yes, very so real. what path did that take you down? Well, I, I think it, I think it, uh, there was, there was the bad and the good of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think the bad of it was I did, I did feel isolated. Um, I, I felt like I wasn't on the same page, did not share, I think in the mission. I, I, I felt like some of my colleagues didn't share in the same mission that I was on. It, it became almost religion to me. And I was trying to control an inherently uncontrollable process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I got disconnected, I think, from the team. I, and I think that that was important. Even though I was the leader of the team, I felt less connected to it. And that, 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 that happened as time went on. But I think that the good part of it, and I'm, I talked to a lot of physicians, especially after my book came out, people contact me you know, with various burnout issues. I think the good part is that it allows an individual that's been in healthcare for a long time to reevaluate their career and to make different career choices. And mine has taken an entirely different path now, one that I think is really meaningful. It's different than it, than it was when I was uh, at Stanford on the front lines mm -hmm. doing transplant work, but it's meaningful nonetheless. And without having gone through what I now know was a burn, burnout, I wouldn't have ever gone on a different career path. I'd probably mm -hmm. still be doing the same thing that I'd been doing and never experienced the things that I'm experiencing now. Right, right. I mean, I've talked a lot about burnout on this podcast. And for you, what was the moment where the light bulb went on and you were like, oh no, like this is, this is not good. Yeah, like, was it I, just a complete breakdown or was it like, I, I think it was, I think it was cumulative, really. I think it was a 25 year career of trying to control, you know, mm -hmm. this uncontrollable process. And I was this air traffic controller trying to bring all the planes down at the same time safely. And I think what happened is, is I got tired and I lost you know, my own, I, I had my own empathy depletion because I got, I, I couldn't watch another patient die. You know, mm -hmm. I just basically mm -hmm. couldn't take it anymore. And my father was a transplant recipient as well. And I think when he passed away after having a successful transplant, and he lived many years after getting a liver transplant, I think that I realized that I was never going to be able to really do perfectly each time we did a transplant and I wasn't going to be able to save every single patient that we encountered and I I couldn't accept it I intellectually I could but emotionally I couldn't mm -hmm. and so I remember losing a patient on the waiting list at Stanford and taking this long walk down the hallway of the hospital and and thinking to myself that I think that's it I think that's it 
Yeah. And I mean, who can blame you? That's it's such a such a difficult career path um, for all of the reasons that you said, but also very rewarding career path for all of the reasons that we spoke about on this on this podcast today. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. I think it does take a special person. I don't know, you would know better than me, but uh, it sounds like it takes a pretty special person to be able to navigate those two lanes, those two moving lanes, often going yeah. in different directions. Yeah, I mean, I must say, I, I, I learned how to do the job one way, and I pretty much did it the same way <laughs> in my entire career. So mm -hmm. I was never able to compartmentalize the job and basically come home at the end of the day and put the job away at the hospital, mm -hmm. and leave it there. I just, I, I just never figured out a way to do that. I, I, I kind of wish I had, and I, and I, I know that other doctors can do that. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't able to do that. So what I wanted to do instead is, you know, create a next chapter for myself. Like, since I knew something about transplant, I now apply that knowledge and help transplant programs perform better. And I, I very much enjoy that. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's gratifying instead yeah. of, you know, instead of helping one group of patients at a time, I get to work all over the country and help a lot. Yeah, of them. yeah. Um, but the thing I miss, and I tell anybody that is leaving the front lines of medicine, it, you cannot replace the daily patient interaction. You shouldn't try to because it's irreplaceable. Right, right, right. I mean, it sounds like such an amazing career and you pivoted when you felt like you needed it. And now, like you said, you're out there helping programs become more efficient to help even more patients all at once. Um, but now, if you wouldn't mind, can you talk a little bit more about the book, where people can find it and what they can expect when they read it? Yeah, I think um, Exhale is the name of the book. And I think what you're going to find and I think what readers have related to is a very honest, uh, raw, uh, emotional book about the ups and downs of doing this kind of work. And I, in it, I'm, I tell patient stories, some of them very inspiring, I think, because that's, that's really the, the great benefit of doing this work is seeing patients do some miraculous things. But I also show a transplant team in action, a lot of personalities, uh, some big egos, some me included, <laughs> and you see them at their best and at their worst. And I think um, what folks have told me about the book is that they appreciate, instead of thinking that their doctor is a robot, they appreciate knowing that their doctor is very likely a human being and has real emotions about what happens and carries it home with them. And I think that's what I tried to do when I, when I wrote the book. I wanted somebody to be able to walk in the shoes that I walked in and say, okay, well, that's what it feels like to do that. And mm -hmm. I, I think that, that's been the most gratifying part of the book. Uh, whereas to get the book, it's available yes. where, wherever you buy books. Wherever uh, you can buy. So you can Amazon it or Barnes and Noble you can, or, you can. Yep. and and we'll have links to your social media and to your website um, so that no matter what platform you're listening to 
right now, if you go to the show notes of this episode, one click will take you to all of the links. So we'll have all of that. But you can, again, get it, get the book anywhere. It's Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in it. Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. That's it. Got it. Um, and it it really does sound like a gripping book. And, you know, in your mind, you can read it like you would a TV show. Right. And and we didn't even talk about, like you said, competing personalities and everything else. I mean, that's a whole other thing. So <laughs> people will have to read that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see that in the book. Yeah. That's wild. Well, let me. Uh, so we know where we can find the book. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you in particular, or follow you on social media? Sure. Uh, so um, the best place is my website. It's davidweilmd.com. It's got links to op-eds I write, the book, of course, interviews that I've done, pretty much all about me. Uh, the, the links to my social media pages uh, are easy to find. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. But before you leave, one more question, and it's one I ask everyone, and that is knowing where you are now in your life and career, what advice would you give to your and let's not say 20-year-old self, because you'd still be an undergrad. Let's say, how about we say like 28, because that's when you're you're out of med school and you're doing your residency and training. Yeah. I mean, I you know, the main message I'm giving, I've, I've talked to a lot of medical groups across the country. And the main thing I'm talking to residents and medical school students about is staying connected to one another. I think we're having more and more of a problem with that in medicine. When I started out, we all kind of hung out together socially, and there's less of that now. The pandemic didn't help that, obviously. Right. But I still think that there's less of that. People tend to go to the hospital and go go their separate ways. Stay connected to one another, but also make sure that you really do stay connected to your family and friends and try to go for that balance in life. I, I think that the way I was trained in medicine, it was pretty much the solution to every problem was to work harder and longer. I don't think that's necessarily the solution to every problem anymore. And so I would encourage anybody that's young going into any medical field, just to make sure that you have that balance. It's really key for a long career. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. And that is wonderful advice for anyone in medicine or any profession for that matter, especially in today's day and age where you go to work, you go home, and a lot of your life is on one of these things, right? I'm holding up my yeah. cell phone. On your cell phone, social media, texting. I mean, I talk to, I have like young patients, like they're teenagers. And I was like, what are you doing with your with, when you're with your friends? She's like, we text each other. I was like, but you're sitting in the same room. And they're sitting in the same room, connected, quote unquote, but just texting each other on their phones. Yeah. So I think when when you're talking about staying connected to each other, it means like really connected, like speaking to each other. Yes. Like having an actual conversation, <laughs> like having an actual conversation, <laughs> yes. not just texting. That doesn't count. No, it doesn't. It doesn't count. Um, well, Dr. Weil, thank you so much. This was great. I feel like I learned so much. Um, and I want to thank you as a physical therapist for being such a big proponent of physical therapists 
in the uh, re recovery and even in like the pre-surgical phase, straight through full recovery for transplant patients. It's really remarkable. So thank you for that support. I'm a, I'm a believer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the APTA does as well. That's the American Physical Therapy Association. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This was great. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah. My pleasure. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.